0: Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you.
1: All of David White's writing points at what he calls the conversational nature of reality. He's a poet and philosopher who believes in the power of a beautiful question amidst the drama of work as well as the drama of life, amidst the ways the two overlap whether we want them to or not. He shared a deep friendship with the late Irish philosopher John O'Donohue, an all-time favorite conversation partner of mine. They were, David White says, like two bookends. More recently, he's written about the consolation, nourishment, and underlying meaning of everyday words.
0: One of the things the Irish say is that the thing about the past is it's not the past. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, it's that's <laughs> um, right here yeah. in this room. It's and, absolutely in this right. conversation.
1: I'm Krista Tippett and this is on being. David White is perhaps best known for his book, The Heart Aroused, Poetry and the Preservation of the Soul in Corporate America. Of both English and Irish descent, he's lived in the U.S. at least part of the time for many years. You know, David, I, for some reason, I had either heard you referred to as an Irish poet or I had referred to as an Irish poet but I lived in the U.K. for a little while, and I, I thought maybe your accent had gotten a little bit muddled up by living in the States too much. And then when I read that you grew up in Yorkshire and that you're not all Irish, it all made perfect sense to me. Um.
0: <laughs> but, yes, it's uh, my uh, accent is a movable frontier, yes. I think. And uh, I grew up with an, an Irish accent in the house through my mother. Okay. And all the usual uh, Irish sayings and uh, imaginings and then spent quite a bit of time in Ireland and then came to the States in in my adulthood. So yeah. I think my accent's about 40 miles off the coast of County Clare, somewhere <laughs> in the mid-Atlantic. <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> and I don't yes. know, would you explain uh, for people who don't know that, you know, you talk about growing up it was your mother who was Irish, right? And your father was mm-hmm. Yorkshire and that there was this interplay in you between imaginative Irish and the grounded Yorkshire.
0: <laughs> yes, I mean, Ireland has its own kind of grounding, uh, but it's grounded in in the imagination and in subverting the foundations of everyday life. And yeah. Yorkshire is uh, very much here in the world, very uh, workaday. But sometimes it, Yorkshire is so uh, grounded, it's surreal and it comes out It turns into its opposite. Hmm. So Yorkshire is a place, you know, where the Industrial Revolution started in the world. But it's also the place of uh, Emily Bronte's moors, the wildness of the Dales, you know, quite remote places. I remember when I was seven or eight years old, um, realizing that I wasn't supposed to choose between the two places, even though they were so different. I was supposed to live out my life. Nowadays, I would say, I would put words into my mouth as a seven year old and say I was supposed to live out the conversation between them both. But it was mm. something felt physically very close. And of course, my work as a poet and philosopher has matured into working with what I call the conversational nature of reality, yes. which is the fact that we don't get to choose so often between things we hope we can choose between.
1: Mm. Well, I I want to talk about that very shortly. And, and before we do, just, uh, well, actually, was there a spiritual background to that childhood of yours or religious background?
0: I would say it was spiritual by osmosis rather mm-hmm. than anything. My uh, mother and her family had undergone the traumas which have now become uh, well known within the Catholic Church. So my I'd say the spirituality for me was in the land, and mm. the land of Yorkshire and the Moors uh, was very powerful indeed. And you can feel that spirituality if you read Emily Bronte and that sense of horizon and distance and invitation that's there.
1: I And then I was uh, very intrigued to learn that you actually got your degree in marine zoology and that you actually began your working life as a naturalist and were in the Galapagos and... The Amazon, Himalayas. Were were you also writing poetry then?
0: Well, I've written poetry since I was very small. I I had very powerful experiences with poetry where I felt literally abducted, taken away by poetry and just like a hawk had come down and taken me in its claws and carried me off. Mm. And uh, I remember reading Ted Hughes when I was young, and he must have been young then too. And having that feeling, and and a very powerful feeling that this was language that adults had written who had not forgotten the primary visions mm. and insights of childhood. Mm. But when I was fourteen years old, I saw Jacques Cousteau, the famous French marine zoologist and inventor of the Aqua Lung. Sail across uh, our little television set in the north of England, <laughs> and I really couldn't believe that you could have work like this in the world. You know, you could actually follow the life of the dolphin aboard the good ship Calypso, and I was so astonished by it that I gave up all my art subjects and put myself into the salt mines of biology, chemistry, and physics. And mm. then I emerged with a degree in marine zoology many years later, and then through sheer luck. And uh, fortune, I I found myself on the shores of the Galapagos Islands as a naturalist guide. And that was really astonishing. And and, uh, that experience in those islands led me back into poetry and philosophy, really. That makes sense. Mm. So it was a long, long uh, circuit. (laughs) Yeah,
1: But it does uh, illustrate some of the conversations that are that that you know this phrase you mentioned a moment ago that's so pivotal for you the conversational nature of reality some some of the conversations you have worked with between i don't know things that might not seem to naturally belong together but that have been your life and the stuff of your philosophy and your poetry
0: yes i mean i went back into poetry because i felt like scientific language wasn't precise enough to describe Mm. the experiences that I had in Galapagos. Science, rightly, is always trying to remove the eye, but uh, I was really interested in the way that the eye deepened the more you paid attention. And in Galapagos, I began to realize that because I was in deeply attentive states, hour after hour watching animals and birds and landscapes, and that's all I did for almost two years, I began to realize that my identity depended not upon any beliefs I had, inherited beliefs or manufactured beliefs, but my identity actually depended on how much attention I was paying to things that were other than myself. And that uh, as you deepen this intentionality and this attention, you started to broaden and deepen your own sense of presence. And I began to realize that the only place where things were actually real was at this frontier between what you think is you and what you think is not you. Uh, That whatever you desire of the world will not come to pass exactly as you would like it. But the other mercy is that whatever the world desires of you will also not come to pass. And what actually occurs is this meeting, this frontier. But it's astonishing how much time human beings spend away from that frontier abstracting themselves out of their bodies out of their direct experience and uh, out of a uh, deeper broader and wider possible future that's waiting for them if they hold the conversation at at that frontier level Mm. half of what's about to occur is unknown both inside you and outside you john o'donohue a mutual friend of both of us used to say that one of the necessary tasks is this radical letting alone of yourself and the world. Yeah, letting the world speak in its own voice and letting this deeper sense of yourself speak out. Yeah,
1: I, I love the the Consolations book. The the subtitle of that is the solace, nourishment, and underlying meaning of everyday words, and and the word that comes first is is alone. Um, mm. And I, I think is one of the important observations you make there is that, and a thing that's really basic but hard for us to take in is that one of the elemental dynamics of self-compassion is to understand our deep reluctance to be left to ourselves.
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I've often felt like the deeper discipline of poetry is overhearing yourself say things you didn't want to know about the world. Mm. And uh, something that actually emancipates you from this smaller self out into this larger dispensation that you actually didn't think you deserved. And so one of the things we're most afraid of is the, uh, in silence is this death of the periphery. You know, the, the outside concerns, uh, the place where you've been building your personality and where you think you've been building who you are starts to atomize and fall apart. And it's one of the basic reasons why we find it difficult even just to turn the radio off or the Mm. television or not look at our gadget, you know. Is that giving over to something that's going to actually seem as if it's undermining you to begin with and lead to your demise. And uh, the intuition, unfortunately, is correct. You are heading towards your demise, but it's leading towards this richer, deeper place. That uh, doesn't get corroborated very much in our everyday outer world.
1: Would you read the poem um, "Everything is waiting for you"?
0: I'll not only read it; I'll recite it. Actually, I have it in my memory. And I was just in a room full of many hundred people this morning reciting this very Mm -hmm. poem. And uh, uh, this piece is uh, is written almost like a conversation in the mirror, uh, trying to remind myself what's first order. (laughs) Okay. And we have so many allies in this world, uh, including just the color blue in the sky, uh, which we're not paying attention to, or the breeze, or the ground beneath our feet. And so this is an invitation to come out of abstraction and back into the world again. It's called Everything is Waiting for You. Your great mistake, your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. As if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you courage. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. The tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything, everything, everything is waiting for you.
1: Hmm. I, I love that line, alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity.
0: Exactly. Yes, And you could take that into a relationship or marriage with good results. Mm. <laughs> Alertness mm. is the hidden discipline of
1: and familiarity. You, you make the point also that 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 everything that is waiting includes things that will surprise us in both
0: directions, right?
1: <laughs> that, well, that, yes. that that everything also yeah. includes your own d- demise.
0: Exactly. Um. Yeah. Yes, half of every of all human experience is mediated through loss and disappearance. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why we won't have the conversation. Because we
1: don't want to go there. We don't want to open that, acknowledge no, that if possibility. You,
0: if you have a really fierce loss, you know, the loss of someone who's mm-hmm. close to you, uh, the loss of a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a friend, God forbid, a child, you know, then human beings have every right to say, listen, God, if this is how you play the game, I'm not playing the game. I'm not playing by your rules. I'm going to, I'm going to manufacture my own little game. And I'm not going to come out of it, you know, I'm going to make my own little bubble. And I'm going to draw up the rules. And I'm not coming out to this frontier again. I'm, I'm, I am I'm, I, don't want to, you know, I want to create insulation. I want to create um, distance. And uh, many human beings do that for the rest of their lives. Many do it for just a short period and then re-emerge again. But all of us... Uh, are struggling to be here. One of the great theological questions is around incarnation, which simply means being here Mm -hmm. in your body, not anywhere else, just here with life's fierce need to change you. And the fact that the more you're here and the more you're alive, the more you realize you're you're a mortal human being, yeah and uh, and that you'll pass from this place and will you actually turn up will you actually have the conversation given that is so will you become a uh, full citizen of vulnerability loss and disappearance which you have no choice about
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the poet, philosopher, David White. I sense all the way through your writing, in your poetry, in your other writing, you I will say it this way, but I don't. There's a sadness in you, which is in, in all. I it's in all of us. But it's a, you walk with it as a companion. I think more openly than we're taught to do, and perhaps that's also something that poetry allows. I so, you and I both loved John O'Donohue, and I think we yes. also both love Rilke, and Rilke talked mm-hmm. about you know loving the dark hours of his being. Yes. Um, yes. And, yeah, I just wanted to note that I, I appreciate it. And it's also one of these things about uh, what you bring into the world that is, um, I know people recognize it, but it's also a little bit frightening.
0: Yes. And uh, I describe it more from my own experience as wistfulness and poignancy. Mm-hmm. Yes a kind of elegiac uh, approach to life. And an elegy, you know, a good elegy, looking at it from the poetic point of view, is always a conversation between grief and celebration. Mm. The grief of the loss of the person and the celebration that you are here at all to share the planet with them, you know. Mm. And uh, we have that initial shock. Uh, I had that shock, you know, it was such a close friend to uh, John O'Donohue, who we've mentioned, you know, and he was, I, I'm, I'm a poet-philosopher, he would have been a philosopher-poet, and we were like two bookends, and there was uh, always someone in the world I knew. Um, who was traveling and speaking uh, from the same place, although using slightly different language and a slightly different accent. (laughs) But uh, when he went, it was like uh, the other half of me disappeared. And uh, we have this physical experience in loss of falling towards something. It's it's like falling in love, except it's falling into grief. Mm. And uh, you're falling towards the foundation that they held for you in in your life that Mm. you didn't realize they were were holding and you fall and fall and fall and you don't find it for the longest time. And so the shock of the loss to begin with and the hermetic sealing off is necessary in grief. But then there comes a time where you finally actually start to touch the ground that they were holding for you. And it's from that ground that you step off into your new life and uh, been very strange phenomena in that instance for instance of uh, losing John whereby I'll start a sentence and feel like John has finished it or I'll hear mm. John speaking and I'll I'll start in his voice and finish in my own mm. and sometimes we're both talking together which happened a lot when we were <laughs> mm. when we were mm. actually together and uh, so there's this uh, really astonishing melding that occurs which is a kind of dream time which human beings start to move into in their maturity, actually, where what is past, what is present, and what's about to occur are not so clearly marked out. you know hmm. one of the things the Irish say is that the thing about the past is it's not the past. <laughs> that's right. <Yeah>, <laughs> um, right here yeah. in this room it's you know, in this right. conversation you know?
1: and there's so many different kinds of loss, right, and across the lifespan. I mean, I'm right now just about my second child my son is about to leave home and yes I, I love thinking about that it's just kind of sinking in on me and I love thinking about that you know what would that what will that mean for this particular loss to yes. fall into that foundation of yes. you know how becoming a mother absolutely transformed me and will still be part yes. of me but my child will not be at home in that way.
0: This is another delusion we have, that we can get th- take a sincere path in life without having our heart broken. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> and
0: you think about the path of parenting, there's, there's never been a mother or father since the beginning of time who hasn't had their heart broken by their children. Yeah. <laughs> and nothing dramatic has to happen. All they have to do is grow up. <laughs> right. <laughs> but usually there are dramatic happens, things yes. that
1: happen as well anyway.
0: <laughs> exactly, yeah, just in case we were getting bored.
1: So, you know... I first started hearing about you in the 90s, I think, and especially this book, The Heart Aroused, Poetry mm-hmm. and the Preservation of the Soul in Corporate America.
0: Yes. And, a <laughs> book know, I was bullied into writing. Yes. What?
1: Oh, you were bullied into writing.
0: Well, Yes, in a good way, yes.
1: I I think um, on the surface, most people would say that corporations would be the least poetic spaces in our midst. What um, you, I think, bring into the open or help people bring into the open is... The difficult fact that all of this complexity of being human and all of these things we carry, uh, we don't actually check at the door of our workplaces. I mean, you talk about the drama of work. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, how did you get into that um, and what did, you, what, did, what, what did you learn
0: there? Well, you know, I'm still in the heart of it. Mm-hmm. I work with companies and their leadership teams all around the world. Yeah. And, but to begin with, I, I all I knew was my bitterly earned experience within non profit organisations. <laughs> but I do say, if you really Which want to kill also, yourself, can also have yeah,
1: drama and perhaps more. Exactly. Oh my God!
0: No, it's <laughs> yeah. If you really want to kill yourself, the non profit is the place to go. You know. <laughs> and if you want Machiavellian politics, then uh, yeah. a non a good non profit or the English department at the University is yeah. exactly the place Touche, to go. Yeah. You know? And. Um, I went full-time as a poet, never imagining that I would work in the belly of the beast in the corporate world. You know, I grew up from long lines of rebels and the dispossessed on both my Scots, Yorkshire, and and on my Irish sides. And then I grew up in an area of West Yorkshire, which was raving socialist and where the Luddites used to march across the fields to break up the machinery. (laughs) So, you know, my blood inheritance was around disbelief and around scepticism, around any large abstract organisations, whether they were government or private. And so when I went full-time as a poet, I was only a year into it, and I spoke here, uh, in Washington, D.C. at a large psychological conference. And at the end of the conference was this line of people, and at the end of the line was a man who, in best American fashion, said, we have to hire you. Hmm. And, uh, and I said, in best Anglo-Irish fashion... For what? <laughs> Enthusiastically. And he said, to come into corporate America. And I said, for what? And he said a marvelous thing, actually. He said, the language we have in that world is not large enough for the territory that we've already entered. Mm-hmm. The language we have. in th- And in your work, I've just heard the language that's large enough for us. And of course, he was talking about, uh, about the territory of human relationship that the workplace was entering. And uh, the movable human relationship and the movability that the organizations had to have, you know. And the only place that came from was from the individuals who actually worked within the structures. So it was the breaking apart of many of those structures. And I don't think we quite realize. How overstructured our organizations were just twenty-five years ago yeah. or thirty years ago. I mean, there are still plenty of dinosaur ones left for us to still go and live in. Well, we I, think them, we've, but, I think we I think we we
1: realize it every once in a while when we we engage with an organization that's still structured that way, that hasn't managed to change, and you realize yes. how unwieldy and inefficient and yes. ridiculous it is, and bad yes. for us.
0: Yes, and of course we've still a long way to go. It's all of our. Difficulties have now become more subtle and more invisible mm. between us. And so that's what I work with around, whether it's inside yourself or with the people you're trying to actually bring together to do things that a single person can't do alone. And really, that's the definition of a corporation. It's from corpus, Latin, meaning a body. It's a group of people trying to do something you cannot do if you try to do it by yourself. Mm. That's, mm-hmm. that's the only definition. Uh, that's the simplest core radical simplicity at the center of every organization. Yeah.
1: You also you extend this idea that there's no self that will survive a real conversation and say there's no organization that will keep its original identity if it's in a conversation. I suppose you also mean yes. a conversation with within and without with with the world as well.
0: Yeah, I mean all of us have this inherited conversation inside us which we know is untouchable, you know, it comes from our parents, from our the way we're made and all the rest of it. but that's that's an invisible quality inside you. Uh, all the visible qualities you know, that take form and structure will have to change in order to keep the conversation real. Just as, as we go through the different decades of our life, we have to change the structures of our life in order to keep things new, in order to keep our youthfulness. You know? And I do think there is a, a quality of youthfulness which is appropriate to every decade of our life. It mm-hmm. just looks different. We, we have this fixed idea of youthfulness from our teens or our 20s. But actually, there's a form of, the, of youthfulness you're supposed to inhabit when you're in your 70s or your 80s or your 90s. You know? It's this sense of imminent surprise, of imminent revelation, except the revelation and the, and the discovery is more magnified, you know. There's... PSA more to do with your mortality and your and what you're going to pass on and leave behind you the shape of your own absence yeah mm.
1: there's there're these lines from 10 years later your poem uh, innocence is what we allow to be gifted back to us once we've given ourselves away
0: yes and that's
1: I, right it's true that one of the uh, gifts of getting older that is a surprise is that it's a quality of usefulness that doesn't have anything to do with your physical body, but it's like a recovery of something so lovely.
0: Yes, exactly. It's like a deep memory at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And a giving away. You know, if innocence is, in a way, the ability to be found by the world. Mm. It's not a state of naivety. It's the ability to be found by the world you're now inhabiting. Yeah. Mm. And uh, part of what we find is we're just supposed to give ourselves away, actually. I often feel that... one of the real signs of maturity is not only understanding that you're a mortal human being and you are going to die, which usually happens in your mid-40s or 50s. Oh, I am actually going to die. It's Mm -hmm. not someone else I'm going to become. But another step of maturity is actually realizing that the rest of creation might be a little relieved to let you go, (laughs) 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 that you can stop repeating yourself stop taking all this oxygen up and make way for something else which you've actually beaten a trail for you know and uh, it could be your son your daughter could be people you've taught or mentored it could be the more generous you are the more that circle extends you know into our society and those who go after us
1: You can listen again and share this conversation with David White through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment.
0: On Being is supported in part by Penguin Press, the publishers of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Elizabeth Gilbert calls Krista Tippett's book a masterpiece of philosophical and spiritual reflection. On sale April 5th, wherever books are sold.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with David White, the English poet and philosopher, who brings both of those disciplines into the drama of leadership at work, as well as deepening in life. All of his work gets at what he calls the conversational nature of reality. I want to talk a little bit more about the corporate sphere just before we move on. But you know, mm-hmm. so one thing I'm really interested in in general. I interview. I'm just interviewing more and more poets. Um, I'm so interested in this question of what poetry works in us. And so I wonder what you have learned about, you know, how does poetry land in the middle of a workplace and working life? What does it do in us and for us in that context?
0: Well, I always say that uh, poetry is language against which you have no defenses. (laughs) Okay. Otherwise, it's not poetry. It's prose, (laughs) which is about something. And uh, so poetry is that that. moment. Yeah, that moment in a conversation where you have to have the other person understand what you're saying. And sometimes it's when you're delivering terrible news, you know, news of a death or an accident, and you have to tell the other person and they have to hear it, you know. And you have to say it in such a way that it's heard fully. But you have to say it also with the intimacy of care and uh, mm-hmm. of uh, understanding at the same time. And you can also hear it in a marital argument. You know, and you get beautiful echoes and chorus and repetitions in marital arguments. And uh,
1: Beautiful and terrible.
0: Yes, exactly. That's right, <laughs> yes. But in a good marital argument, when one person has said the truth both people are emancipated mm, mm, into the next stage mm. of the relationship unfortunately if you are not the person who said it you have to have a little <laughs> rear guard action where you <laughs> deny it but eventually you have to say i wish i'd have said that mm, mm. <laughs> and you're both actually in this new place you can turn your face away from what was said but when you turn your face back it will still be waiting for you
1: so that's a so, um, of poetry
0: yes yeah, so um you know what I'm working with when I—I I mean, I work in in three different worlds. One is just as a as a poet, you know, with my the intimacy of my readers and my listeners and audiences. Yeah. Then I work in the in the theological and psychological worlds. And at the moment, I've just come out of a big psychological conference in Washington D.C. to do this interview. But really, I work with exactly the same uh, dynamics uh, that we're all afraid of. Yeah. First of all. One of the powerful dynamics of leadership is being visible. It's uh, one of the vulnerabilities of being visible is that when you're visible, you can be seen. And when you can be seen, you can be touched. And when you can be touched, you can be hurt. Mm. So all of us have these elaborate uh, ways of looking as if we're showing up and not showing up. Mm. Except in an organizational setting, it has tremendous consequences on other people's lives. We've all worked in organizations where someone is sitting there at a crossroads or nexus in the organization. They're there, but they're not there. And because of that, they're blocking everything that's trying to come through their particular portal. So one of the dynamics you have to get over with is this idea that you can occupy... A position of responsibility that you can have a courageous conversation without being vulnerable. Hmm. So it's, I, I wrote this uh, little piece in my consolations book on vulnerability because it's one of the great primary delusions uh, we have. Yeah. So shall I read, read yes, a little please. piece of it? Yeah, yeah. These are supposed to be consolations, but sometimes they're like blows to the soul. Of Texas. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> Vulnerability vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition or something we can arrange to do without. Vulnerability is not a choice. Vulnerability is the underlying, ever-present and abiding undercurrent of our natural state. To run from vulnerability is to run from the essence of our nature. The attempt to be invulnerable is the vain attempt to become something we are not and most especially to close off our understanding of the grief of others more seriously. In refusing our vulnerability, we refuse the help needed at every turn of our existence and immobilize the essential, tidal, and conversational foundations of our identity. To have a temporary isolated sense of power over all events and circumstances is a lovely illusionary privilege and perhaps the prime and most beautifully constructed conceit of being human, and especially of being youthfully human. (laughs) But it is a privilege that must be surrendered with that same youth, with ill health, with accident, with the loss of loved ones who do not share our untouchable powers, powers eventually and most emphatically given up as we approach our last breath. The only choice we have as we mature is how we inhabit our vulnerability how we inhabit our vulnerability, how we become larger and more courageous and more compassionate through our intimacy with disappearance. Our choice is to inhabit vulnerability as generous citizens of loss, robustly and fully, or conversely as misers and complainers, reluctant and fearful, always at the gates of existence, but never bravely and completely attempting to enter, never wanting to risk ourselves, never walking fully through the door. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability.
1: Um, a couple of other words in the Consolations book that I, I loved. Um, rest, I loved this, is the conversation between what we love to do and how we love to be.
0: Mm, yes. Sounds like the definition of the perfect Sunday morning. Yeah. mm
1: I'm also intrigued by, um, you know, aloneness. We talked about how alone is the first word in that book and there's Mm -hmm. a dance, um, that you name and kind of tease out between aloneness and belonging.
0: Yes. Well, there are two different forms of belonging, I suppose, and, uh, to have a sense of belonging in the outer world where you feel a sense of freedom comes from this ability to touch this deep foundation of aloneness. And I do feel if you can touch that sense of aloneness, you can live with anyone. Hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: There's a a lovely poem. It's it's rather long, The House of Belonging, but these last um, lines I, I wrote down This is the bright home in which I live. This is where I ask my friends to come. This is where I want to love all the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. This is the temple of my adult aloneness. And I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. There is no house like the house of belonging. It's really wonderful. And again, that juxtaposition... Mm of aloneness and belonging, that inextricability.
0: Yes, yes. And uh, I have this uh, poem actually, which I wrote out of uh, when I was in in the very intense period out of which that poem, The House of Belonging, came when I wrote the book called The House of Belonging. Mm -hmm. And I was writing night and day, but I noticed when I was sat at this uh, lovely little desk, which I still have on a landing at the top of the stairs, I noticed that I had this very different relationship to the world when I wrote at night. Mm. There was this other horizon outside the window that was drawing me and that was contextualizing what I was writing. So I I wrote this piece. It's called Sweet Darkness, and uh, it's about that same place.
1: Where where were you? Where did you write this? On the West Coast?
0: I did. I wrote it on Whidbey Island in Langley, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. um, In the Puget Sound, north of Seattle, yeah. And uh, when your eyes are tired, The world is tired also. When your vision is gone, no part of the world can find you. It's time to go into the night where the dark has eyes to recognize its own. It's time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will make a home for you tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing, you must learn one thing, the world was made to be free in you must learn one thing the world was made to be free and give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with the poet, philosopher, David White. There's some lines from uh, this poem, What to Remember When Waking. "To, To be human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others.
0: Yes. What does that mean? Well, it's really working with that earlier dynamic we worked of, of incarnation, you know, becoming visible in the world. And yet the gift that you're going to give and keep on giving is an invisible gift that will take many different forms. And that you learn more of each time you allow it to take a different form. And you move from your 20s into your 30s and you suddenly find another larger form for it or a different shape, you know, that makes a different connection and And then you deepen it in your forties, yeah, and you get overwhelmed by it in your fifties and <laughs> and then it returns to you again in a, in a more mature forms, settled forms in your sixties yeah? so this is the gift that keeps giving, and it's that internal, deeper source uh, it's you becoming more and more real and more and more visible in the world yeah. hmm. One other
1: word from uh, Consolations, the book, is uh, genius, which you describe as something which we already possess. So you're proposing it as something that's not just for Albert Einstein, but that is accessible to the rest of us. And you say human genius lies in the geography of the body and its conversation with the world. There's your conversation again. Uh, The meeting between inheritance and horizon. So so help me understand that
0: yes well you know in the ancient world uh, the word genius was not so much used about individual people it was used about places and almost always with the word loci uh, so genius loci meant the spirit of a place and we all know what that intuitively means we all have favorite places in the world and it may be a seashore you know where you've got this ancient conversation between the ocean and the land and a particular geography of the way the cliffs or the beaches are formed. Uh, But it could have been the same in the ancient world. You're a little bridge crossing a stream with a pool at the back of it and a willow hanging over the pool. Uh, that place would be said to have a genius loci, but a, a more sophisticated understanding would, would understand it's this it's like this weather front of all of these qualities that meet in that place. So I think it's a very merciful thing to think of human beings in the same way as, it, uh, you know, that is your genius is just the way everything has met in you. And and it's your physically, job. Just
1: physically as well.
0: Exactly. As... Literally mm-hmm. all all, every, all the struggles of your grandparents and your parents and in arriving um, together in giving birth to your parents and giving birth to you, the landscape in which you were nurtured, the dialect or language in which you were educated into the world, yeah, the smells of the local environment. I mean, when I go back to Yorkshire, just the taste of the water off the moors is completely different. When I go to County Clare, the water there uh, again has a spirit because it comes off limestone there. and, mm. and uh, So it's really merciful, actually, not to think of genius as something that I'm going to get to by hard work. You know, if I practice the violin 15 hours a a day, it's the innate gift that makes me want to practice the violin, actually. It's uh, it's the way everything meets inside me. Will I have that conversation? And this is the experience of consummation of a full incarnation in the world.
1: Mm. You know, I had the same conversation with John O'Donoghue that I'm, I'm going to have with you now, which is mm. um, the beauty of that thought. and But the reality that, uh, you know, that that geography for many people at any given time is so harsh. And kind of living with that reality of our global body as well. The puzzle of Yes.
0: That. Yes, that's right. And... Uh there are many people in Syria now just uh, right. trying to uh, preserve uh, their lives and the lives of their loved ones, and uh, uh, so this has always, this has always been there and always been true. And who knows? Any of us could be precipitated into awful circumstances at any time. And many of us go through those dark years where you just feel as if it's just the movement of your own, your own movement that's just creating body heat to actually keep you alive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we go through those very, very narrow places. And John used to talk about uh, uh, how you shaped a more beautiful mind and uh, that it's an actual discipline, no matter what circumstances you're in. The way I interpreted it was uh, was the discipline of asking beautiful questions, and that a beautiful question, you know shapes a beautiful mind. And so the ability to ask beautiful questions often, in very unbeautiful moments, is one of the great disciplines of a human life. Mm. And a beautiful question starts to shape your identity as much by asking it as it does by having it answered. (laughs) And you don't have to do anything about it. You just have to keep asking. And before you know it, you will find yourself actually shaping a different yeah. life, meeting different people, finding conversations that, that are leading you in those directions that you wouldn't even have seen before. Yeah.
1: That's what Rilke called living the question.
0: Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, He's always there before you.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> and he is. Um, uh, also, I mean, one way I've come to think about question, the power of questions is uh, that questions elicit answers in their likeness.
0: So, yes.
1: you know. So you call forth something beautiful by asking a beautiful question.
0: Yes, you do. Yeah, you do. And then the other part of it uh, too is that there's this kind of weighted silence behind each question, mm. and to live with that sense of trepidation—what I call beautiful trepidation—the uh, sense of something about to happen that you've wanted. But, you, but that you're scared to death of actually happening. Yes. <laughs> that's, uh, yes. None of us really feel we deserve our happiness. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you, before we hear some more poetry, um, this ancient animating question, what does it mean to mm-hmm. be human? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's something you you have reflected on Mm-hmm. with language and in thought mm-hmm. uh, all across your life but how you would begin to answer that question now what, and what do you keep on learning yes. what are you learning anew at this moment in your life about yeah. what it means to be human
0: well one of the interesting qualities of being human is by the look of it we're the only part of creation that can actually refuse to be ourselves right. and as far as I can see there's no other part of the world that can do that you know uh, the cloud is the cloud, the mountain is the mountain, the tree is the tree, the hawk is the hawk, you know. And uh, the kingfisher doesn't wake up one day and say, you know, God, I'm absolutely fed up to the back teeth of this whole kingfisher trip. And can I have a day as a crow, you know, hang out with my mates, glide down for a bit of carrion now and again, you know, that's the life of... Me. No, the kingfish, just the kingfisher. And one of the healing things about the natural world to human beings is that it's just itself. Mm -hmm. But we as human beings are really quite extraordinary in that we can actually refuse to be ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can get afraid of the way we are. And we can temporarily put a mask over our face and pretend to be somebody else or something else. And the interesting thing is then we can take it another step of virtuosity and forget that we were pretending to be someone else and become the person we were, on the surface at least, who we were just pretending to be in the, in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of, the, one of the astonishing qualities of being human is the measure of our reluctance to be here, actually. And I think one of the great necessities of self-knowledge is understanding and even tasting the single malt essence of your own reluctance to be here. Yeah? All the ways you don't want to have the conversation. All the ways you don't want to be in the marriage. You don't want to be a parent. You don't want to be visible in a leadership position. You don't want to be doing this work. And this is not to give it away. This is just to understand what lies between you and a sense of freedom in it. Mm. And I think self-compassion has to do with this ability to understand and even to cultivate a sense of humor about all the ways you just don't want to be here. I mean, actually, that's, you know, that is the Woody Allen <laughs> comic routine in the world. <laughs> so, yeah. It's all the hypochondriac ways he's afraid of the world. And that's why he's so entertaining, because we all recognize that part of us. Here. All right. So to embody your reluctance, and therefore, once it's embodied, to allow it to actually start to change into something else. Yeah. To Things only solidify when they're kept at a distance. As soon as they're embodied, they actually start to take on a kind of seasonality. Hmm. And you're actually, by, by embodying it, by feeling it fully, allowing it to start to change into something else.
1: Hmm. Would you maybe also just read one more? Read Working Together?
0: working together. Yes, yeah. do you have I that, that do? in my memory actually. Oh, you do. To. Okay. Yeah. We shape ourselves to fit this world, working together. We shape ourselves to fit this world and by the world are shaped again. The visible and the invisible, working together in common cause to produce the miraculous. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air traveled at speed round a shaped wing easily holds our weight. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air travelled at speed round a shaped wing easily holds our weight. So may we in this life trust to those elements we have yet to see or imagine and find the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us. And find the true shape the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us
1: David White is an associate fellow at Said Business School at the University of Oxford His books include The Heart Aroused Poetry and the Preservation of the Soul in Corporate America Consolations, The Solace, Nourishment, and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words, and River Flow, New and Selected Poems. You can hear this interview again and all the poems David White read in this hour, plus a few more, on our website. And April is National Poetry Month. At OnBeing.org, you can also find our Poetry Radio Project, an archive of poets and poetry you've heard on this show, from Wendell Berry to Mary Oliver to Rilke and Rumi. All this and much more at OnBeing.org. on being is trent gillis chris hegel lily percy mariah helgeson maya terrell annie parsons marie Samboulet, Tess montgomery asil zaron bethany klecker and selena carlson special thanks this week to thomas crocker and all the good people at many rivers press for giving us permission to use david white's poetry Our major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build a spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of Public Theology Reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives.
0: On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.